Okay, thank you everybody for tuning in and coming to the Shi'ur. Last week we spoke about the Silichot, or the history of the Silichot. We are in a class on Piyut, and because it is, we are approaching the High Holidays, we took a little bit of a tangent to focus on the Silichot. We finished speaking about the Ashkenazi and French, the German and French uh, uh, Piyot writers, the Paitanim. They were the main writers of uh, of the earlier forms of Piyot, as well as the Italians. And so we took a bit of a tangent to study the Silichot, or the history of the Silichot, just for the high holidays. Now, to recap last week's Shi'ur briefly, the history of the Silichot is extremely complicated. The in, in the Geonic times, almost 1,300 years ago, nobody said the word slichot and meant the, the, the ritual that you say early in the morning before prayers. That was not what they meant when they said the word slichot. Uh, over a millennia ago, the way that what they called slichot was a completely different custom. To say, to say piyutim, to say uh, poetic insertions into the chazara of Yom Kippur. Today, this custom survives only in the Ashkenaz, uh, uh, what's it called, Minhag, on Yom Kippur. Today, they only do it with Ne'ilah, but they're supposed to be doing it for all the Chazarat HaShatz. And the idea was, they used to say Psukei Drachami, they used to say certain verses like Yud Gimel Midot and Tfilat Moshe and Tfilat Daniel. And these are very powerful verses, and people wanted to say it over and over. So they would add poetic additions in between the repetitions of these pesukim and say them over and over inside the Chazara. That was what they called Selichot in the time of the Geonim. Eventually, this practice was, was carried over to a regular Ta'anit, which was not Yom Kippur. Now, a regular Ta'anit, which is not Yom Kippur, is not a, typically the Ta'aniyot are not about um, sin. The, they're not about Averot. If you think about uh, Tisha B'Av or Tanit Esther, Tzom Gedalia, those, those fasts are really about grief. They're about mourning. So when they transferred this minhag from Yom Kippur to the other fasts and they would add Piyutim in the Chazarat HaShatz, they put it into the bracha of Silach Lanu instead of the bracha of Atak Kadosh. So it's possible that that's where <laughs> they got the name Silichot. Now, after this, there was also a custom to recite um, various verses of penitence, right? In the mornings, or sorry, in, sorry, in the nighttime during the Aserati Metushuvah, during the 10 days of repentance between Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. These verses included standard uh, Pesukim, simple Tachanunim, and mostly and most famously, Litanies, which are litanies, are simple, responsive, poetic forms, which are very easy for the congregation and the prayer leader to recite together. These are inspired by pesukim like Hodulashem Kitov Ki Lolam Chasto Israel Ki Lolam Chasto. These these um, early litanies first developed in Babel, as we see in the Mishnayot. Uh, in Masechet Ta'anit, we have Misha'anal Avraham, Misha'anal Yitzchak. We have examples of this already in the Mishnah. And these early litanies were what they said in the Ashmoret. And they called this custom the Ashmoret, the, uh, 
the, the, during the night guard. They would get up in the middle of the night to say it. So this custom of saying the litanies at night eventually adopted many of the piyutim that they used to say on Yom Kippur. These selichot, along with Yud Gimel Midot, got transplanted into the litanies. And then eventually they got mixed up. And over the many years, the litanies, which were called Rahamin, or they were called Ashmoret, began to get infused with many more poetic editions, which with proper piyutim and proper uh, insertions of Yud Gimel Nidot. But, the, but the, the, the ritual of Slichot, as we understand it today, looked nothing like it did 1,300 years ago in Gaonic times. Now, let's briefly discuss when to say, um, when, to, when people began saying Slichot. So, in the time of the Gaonim, as I just mentioned, they would say they would begin saying the Ashmoret or the Rachamim, these litanies, right? These simple forms of what we call today Salichot, only during the Aseret Yemei Teshuvah. And based on various uh, indicators from the Rishonim and Geonim, many have assumed that or suspect that this had to do with the pre-existing minhag to fast on those days. We have records of, of uh, Yechidim, of individuals, who would fast on those days. And because fasting and saying Silichot were intimately connected, therefore those days were chosen. The Ramah in Tafresh Chet, Si'if Dalid, mentions a minhag that some people, believe it or not, would fast all 40 days of El, uh, beginning Rosh Chodesh Elul, just like Moshe Rabbeinu Alav Shalom when he went into... When Moshe Rabbeinu went into Shemayim, he didn't eat for 40 days, so too they would fast from Rosh Chodesh uh, Elul, which is uh, probably skipping Shabbat, but that was the minhag. So most likely, this minhag of the Sfaradim to do it all 40 days is somewhat related to that. The Ashkenazim uh, will make sure that they do Silichot at least four days before Rosh Hashanah. And I saw the Rabbi Volgamoth suggested, uh, based also on the Achronim, that the reason why the Ashkenazim will always start four days before Aseret Yimei Teshuvah is because within the Aseret Yimei Teshuvah there are four days in which one is not allowed to, to fast and therefore to make up for those four days you can't fast within the Aseret Yimei Teshuvah we um, uh, they say Selichot four days before now in the time of the Geonim again over a thousand years ago people would fast it was very common for people to fast on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Not everybody did this, but it was a very common minhag. They would also say silichot on Rosh Hashanah. Now, eventually, this minhag lost popularity uh, because, I mean, I mean, the poskim didn't really like, for many halachic reasons, and even the early Rishonim did not really approve, based on the Gemarot in Bavli, they did not approve of fasting on Rosh Hashanah, and therefore it lost Popularity, but the minhag to say silichot in Rosh Hashanah did survive. And if you look for a very long time, if you look in the Machzor Aram Soba, and I will share my screen here briefly, this Machzor Aram Soba is the is the sitter, the um, how do you put it? It's the the prayer book of the Syrian Nusach, the Syrian rite before. It was corrupted by the Castilian, the Spanish rite of the of the immigrants, the refugees from Spain, in the early 1500s. So, if you look here in this early Sidur Machsor Aram Soba, you will have Slichot, uh, you will have Slichot Le Rosh Hashanah. 
beginning Hashem Shema Bekoli Reoni Amali. And it was very common in a machzor in a machzor back then to have slichot and Rosh Hashanah, but this minhag eventually also um, fell away. Now, in the tour and in the Beit Yosef, in Tafresh Beit, they mentioned that the early Spanish minhag was also to include, believe it or not, slichot on Shabbat. So if Shabbat tefillot were not long enough for you, you can imagine what it was like to, to, to pray 600 years ago in Spain. They would also add slichot on Shabbat. In the Beit Yosef, eventually demurs and deprecates this minhag. He says people did it because, uh, you know, those, they, they only said during a Sarah to Shuvah, so on Shabbat Shuvah, they allowed people to say Selichot. And this is indeed, in the Geonim, there's record of this minhag to say Selichot on Shabbat Shuvah. However, eventually this too was deprecated and the minhag fell to the wayside. Now, how about what time to say Selichot? If you ask anybody, everybody has an opinion about what time you should say it. Should, is it better to do it late at night? Is it better to do it at Chatzot? Can you do it after RV? Can you do it at 10 o'clock? Can you do it at 8 o'clock? Should you do it early in the morning? Should you do it after night? Should you do it before night? Every Jew will have an opinion. Now, no Jew that you will speak to will have an opinion to say to do it Mincha time. That's, for some reason, nobody does it during the afternoon. Now, as I just mentioned earlier, the Geonic um, custom was to, to call it Ashmoret. And Ashmoret means during the watch. The watch is, is an expression from the Gemara Brachot where there is a tradition that the, the, the Malachi Hasharet, the, the, the serving angels in, in heaven, have separate uh, uh, cycles of duty during the nighttime. And there's three cycles that they go through every single four hours, right? They have three sections of the night. So there's the first watch, the second watch, and the third watch. And these have their own Kabbalistic uh, significance. So either during the second or third watch, meaning roughly 11 p.m. or 3 a.m., people would uh, wake up to say the Selichot. Now, if you look in the earliest record of this topic, the earliest record I'm going to show on my screen here is the, from the Shailot Shuvot HaGeonim HaChadashot. Right, this is by the Ofek Institute. These were newly discovered manuscripts, at least fresher manuscripts of the um, Geonic Respondum, Responsa. And in this, there's a fascinating Sheila that was sent to one of the Rosh Yeshivot in Babel. And this person is more yeshivish than anybody I ever knew. We don't have the language of the of the of the uh, of the Shoel, but we have the, the language of the Geonim. He said, Vishesha'altem. That which you asked, that our minhag here in the yeshivot is, you asked us, our minhag is to do it either or in the third of the night. We say tachnunim and verses of penitence. And after they finish, people go home and they go back to sleep and they sleep until the morning, right? So people would wake up in the middle of the night, either 11 p.m. or 2 a.m., uh, 2 uh, 3 a.m. They didn't really have clocks back then, but, you know, first, uh, the second or third uh, 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 section of the night. And then they would go back to sleep, to sleep until the morning. Um, and during the daytime, people go about their normal business. And they do their, their, their normal matters. 
and you ask that this is inappropriate. Right? People shouldn't be sitting around in... People shouldn't be wasting their time during the afternoon. The, the person who's asking the question is like, a lot of people are fasting, and it's the middle of the afternoon. So many people do nothing in the middle of the day. Why don't we do the slichot in the middle of the day? People are doing nothing anyway. So the Rosh Hashiva answered the Gaon. Uh, the, the office responded, Im It's fine. People could say the slichot during the day if they wanted to. Ella, however, we have a policy to do it at night. Why? Perhaps there are people who really need to work. There are poor people, plenty of people who have work. We have no right to introduce this minhag and, and um, what's it called? Inconvenience people from their normal work schedule and put yet another davening in the middle of the day. And we, we're not going to, uh, to, to make a new... Uh, decree on the congregation unless they'll be able to uh, unless they'll be able to actually go through with it and it's better he says that they should come at night don't come by day people have more ability at night to cry and people have more ability to have kavana and it's better that people should come by night than by day so it seems that originally there was no comp- there was no um, uh, what's the word preference in the time of the Gonim the Rosh Yeshiva, who, who were familiar with the, the genesis, really, of this minhag, had, had really no preference. Yes, you could say slichot by day, yes, you could say it by night, didn't really matter. It just in their times, that, that is what made the most sense, to, to do it in the nighttime. And I should also just explain that in the olden days, people would go to sleep early, like at sunset, 8 or 9 p.m., and then typically most people would wake up once during the middle of the night. So most people would sleep twice. They would go to sleep at 8, they'd wake up at you know 1 or 2 in, in the morning, and then they would go do some business, I mean like use the bathroom, go eat something, and then they would go back to sleep. So it was very easy for people to wake up in the middle of the night, take care of something, and then come back and go back to sleep. Now, this minhag today, you will find a... a um, today the mikubalim they since probably the 16th century already in, in the in the in the Shara Kavanot, they very much they very much dis, uh, what's the word discourage uh, to, with I should discourage is, is the wrong word probably prohibit people from saying slichot before chatzot. And the reason the Mikubalim say this is because the first half of the night has a uh, a midat hadin, so to speak. It is a time of judgment. And you're not supposed to say things about rachamim in the first half of the night. And therefore, because of the mekubalim, the minahag is not to say it in the first half of the night. However, there are some who are lenient and do, will do slichot at like 10 p.m. Especially, they'll make a judgment call, like some rabbis will say, if I don't do it at 10, nobody's going to do it whatsoever. So they do it at 10 p.m. And that is what it is. Interestingly, the Jews of Amsterdam and the Jews of London, specifically the Spanish-Portuguese Jews, would add a second slichot set every single night after Arvit. And personally, I had never seen this, but there was a Spanish-Portuguese sidor printed in English by Rabbi David de Solapul in the early 20th century. And I found it right there. Hold up. Let me... Did I close it? Of course I closed it. Um, nope, I have it. Here we go. I'm just going to share my screen for a second to show you. There's a very short, uh, it's maybe a four-page silichot 
in the uh, in this in the Spanish Portuguese Sidur. It says, And it begins with, Can you imagine every single night people were saying an extra set of slichot? They would say, Hashem Hashem, They'd say, Hashem Hashem again. And before you know it, they were finished the slichot. And this, this is basically all the, I think maybe one or two more pages. And the whole thing is done. So very interesting, and clearly people, the Spanish, Portuguese, and the Dutch had no problem with saying slichot during the nighttime. Okay, onward. So let's look at, let's just discuss briefly what is, what was the early rites, what were the early nuschaot of the slicha. Now, before the dawn of printing, it must be understood that the, the the choice of what of which piyutim were going to be said was chosen arbitrarily by the Hazan. There's no two ways about this, and this is stated explicitly in the manuscripts of the Machsorim and the Sidurim that we have. It will say explicitly that the the Hazan will choose, and here the Hazan chooses whichever piyutim he he he, he prefers. Furthermore, if you look inside the piyutim themselves, the piyutim will contain inside of them uh, speech in the poetry itself, inside the slicha, it will say the, the, a language where it's clear that it's the chazan speaking on behalf of the congregation. So this is really an obvious thing and that most people should know that originally the slichot were chosen arbitrarily by the chazanim. Now, this makes it exceedingly difficult to track what the early rites were. What were people doing in early Europe? What were people doing in early Spain, in early Italy, in, in Egypt, in Iraq, in Syria? This is impossible to know specifically what people were doing in every single locale. However, over time, different areas developed different favorites, different habits. Different chazanim began to like their own tunes. Some chazan, one chazan was great at singing Adona Selichot, one chazan was great at singing Yeruni Rayonai. Beautiful. So different places just developed different habits and different customs. In Europe, um, once the printing press was invented, the amount of different minhagim that began to be printed was humongous. And in general, um, Rabbi Daniel Goldschmidt, he separated them into at least 13 different groups of minhagim. He has a long list in his introduction to the Selichot. The minhag Prague, minhag Amsterdam, minhag Lita, minhag Poland, minhag Hungary. There's at least 13 different books that were printed for the Ashkenaz, Western and Eastern Ashkenaz uh, custom for the Selichot. Of those 13 different books, only about Two, after the war especially, only about two of those uh, rites, of those, of those nuschaot uh, remained. Those were the two most popular, what we call the Lita, um, like the most, probably the Minak Frankfurt, and then also the, the Minhag Poland, which is the Eastern Ashkenazi rite. Now, as, when it comes to the Sfaradim, we also have no information. We don't. Sorry, we have little information. A lot of the manuscripts are very much mixed up. They have all. Every manuscript does its own thing for Selichot. We do see it's mixed between Lidanese, It's mixed between Yudgimel Midot Rachamim and Piyutim and Selichot and Akedot and Tachnunim. We do see a general mix, 
But the most, I did not know this, I was looking for this for a while, I found on Otar HaChochma, there is a, a Seder HaSlichot written by Rabbi Aviran Yitzchak, he's a, a Dayan in Eretz Yisrael, Rabbi Aviran Yitzchak Halevi. He wrote a Seder Slichot, like a, like a book on the Slichot, and in the introduction he says that there is a Sidur that was printed in, in Napoli, in, in Naples, in the year 1490. And this um, this is in today in the library of of Port in the National Library of Portugal in Lisbon in in uh, in Portugal, and over there they have this sidor, which contains the earliest collection of the Sfaradi Nusach that was printed. This is again 1490 is is one of the earliest uh, printed books. And because this was the first Sfaradin Nusach that was printed, this first Sidur from, from Naples influenced all the printings later because it was just much easier for the printing houses to use and reference the first book that was printed. They weren't going to go chasing after manuscripts to print another Slichot if somebody already printed one. So the, the Naples edition was the first one that... Um, was most likely copied by all the later uh, printing houses in Venice and all over, all over Italy. He does a study there in the footnotes about exactly how that Nusaf evolved. And although the only extant copy is in the National Library of Portugal, and I'm not uh, really in the mood of taking a flight there right before Rosh Hashanah, to our great fortune, the the um, National Library of Israel has some of those pages digitized. And if you go to their website, I cannot recite. You could just look up Sidur Tfilot 303. That's the name of the of the book. Or you could just search uh, Sidur uh, in English. You could you could search Sidur Naples, and you'll find it. I'll share I'll share my screen here for a second just to give you an idea of how old this of how old this book is. Um, how can I do that for a brief second? Just for entertainment value. Let's share screen. Here we go. This is the nli.gov.co.il, uh, I think. And here you have one of the earliest, um, one of the earliest printed machsorim in Sephardic literature. I'll fast forward a little bit here. You'll have, here's the benching, and then... Tfilat Kol Ayom Kippurim Kol Nidre. It's a very fascinating uh, early printed work. Okay, let's move onward. Um, now, one of the things you'll notice, which is the difference between Sfaradim and Ashkenazim, is that the Sfaradi one might be much longer. But the Ashkenaz one basically cheated their way out of it. And the way the Ashkenazim do it is that they divide, they had way more material than they could possibly ever use. When it, the, the amount of slichot that were written for the Yamim Noraim, for Asertimei Teshuvah, was more than anyone could ever say in a single afternoon. So what they did was is that they divided it by days. And we first see this division occur in the 15th century, according, at least according to Daniel Goldschmidt. I didn't pour through the the manuscripts myself, but according to him, the earliest time we see this, the, the Ashkenazim dividing it by days was in the 15th century. However, the Sfaradim, the Italians, the Temanim, and the Balkan Jews never divided it by day. It was only the Ashkenazim who did this. Also, the Minhag Tripoli had a very similar Minhag, but we were stuck with the much longer 
the much longer version of the Selichot, perhaps to our detriment, because uh, some people don't like how long the Selichot are by the Sfaradim, and perhaps the Minhag Tripoli would have been better, but uh, or the Minhag Ashkenaz would have been better for the Sfaradim, but, but it is what it is. Now, I wanted to discuss the structure for just one second. Okay, so now... There's a difference if you open a Sfaradi book and an Ashkenaz book between the structures of their Selichot. The Sfaradi one has per- basically no rhyme or reason. And uh, the researchers who uh, are not being polite call it a corrupted mess. They call the Ashkenaz, the, the, the Sfaradi version of the Selichot, a complete mess. Because honestly, I went through it and I took notes. There's about 39 different components to the, Ash- to the Sfaradi Selichot. And there's simply no rhyme or reason or pattern for why they chose to put certain things in certain places. Once you get past the initial Ashrei, Kaddish, Chitkabal, and the simple Rishuyot, you don't really have a, uh, you don't really have a real uh, consistent pattern. We ha- you have a litany of penitential verses which begins with Lecha Hashem Tzedakah. Then you go to Tefillat Daniel right away. Then in the middle of nowhere they put a piyut by Rabbeinu Shemaya. Then Kel Malach and Yugimu Midot Rachamim. Then Rachmanad Karlan, again Kelmelch and Yugimul Midot. Then you have Rachmanad Karlan, Yugimul Midot, Anche Amuna, Yugimul Midot, Tamanu Merot, Yugimul Midot. They chose the Piyut Al Tasimana Kala, Etvadal Averot. They do a Vidui, a Piyut, a litany, a litany, a litany, a Piyut, a litany, a litany, a litany, a Piyut, Kelmelch, one of the Tilim, and onward and onward. So most likely, because this all evolved from this printed sitter in, in, in 1490, there is some uh, hints of a structure, but an actual rigid structure does not exist with the Sfaradi Nusach. The Ashkenaz Nusach, however, follows a deliberate structure. Um, what's nice about the structure is that you can tell from the poetic perspective that the litanies were a distinct portion. For you, first, the Ashkenaz begins with a peticha, then it goes to two silichot, it does a pizmon, and then it has an end portion. So this this simple structure um, before the litanies always is is always consistent. And I think they end the end uh, they end the silichot with um, with the tachanunim in general. And I should just mention if I say pizmon, the, the it's a very interesting thing. People say the word pizmon, and if you if you ask a Sfaradi or an Ashkenaz, if you speak to a Sfaradi or an Ashkenaz, they'll understand the word pizmon very differently. A Sfaradi person, when when the Sfaradim use the word pizmon, they mean various different types of piyut team. There's a, a, quite a few which are called pizmon. Typically, they mean a they mean a musical piyut. The Ashkenazim will only call a pizmon a piyut that has a refrain or some sort of chor- choral response because they see in that refrain or in that choral response a a type of uh, a type of melody so like for example adonas lichot to them would be a pizmon and because it continue it continuously repeats now the origin of the word pizmon is is i i think fascinating because the 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 major the majority consensus is that the word pismon is not really pismon it's just a mispronunciation originally the word pismon was pizamon that comes from the greek the greek the greek word for him is pisamos right where from where we today get the word pisam and the greek word pisamos eventually in many languages got 
shortened to Pizam, and in Hebrew, from Pizam went to Pizamon. And because there's no vowels, most people today call it Pizmon. There are those who, it's clearly not a Hebrew word, but for some people suspect that uh, the word uh, uh, Pizmon might come from another type of hymn from the Greek uh, prosomoyan, uh, I think it's a certain type of Greek hymn, but most likely the word pizmon is, is, is just, a, is just a, a word for a psalm or a, or a hymn. So as I mentioned, the Ashkenaz has a deliberate structure. And just to say it really briefly for anybody who's interested, the days before Rosh Hashanah, they do a p'tichat, two slichot, a pizmon, and then, and, then, and then a siluk, then the end portion. On Monday and, and, and Thursday, they skip the p'tichat. On Aseretimei Teshuvah, they do the p'tichat, they do two slichot plus an extra one on the tzom, and then they do a slicha called a shlishia. Shlishia is a, any slicha which has a three-kola strophe instead of a four-kola strophe like a shalmonit. A shalmonit, which is named after Shlomo Habavli, the, the, one of the originators of this, has, is a four-kola strophe. It has four lines. And then they'll do an akedah, pizmon, a chatanu, and a tchina. On Erev Shashana, the Ashkenazim go all out. You, if you avoid at all costs going to the Ashkenazim on Erev Shashana, because if you're Sfaradi, you're going to not know what hit you. You're going to be there for two hours. They will do four or five Shalmoniyot, two Sheniyot, which are two Kolostrofid poems, uh, uh, Piyutim. You have a Shlishiyah, you have two Shalmoniyot, you have an Akedah, a Pizmon, a Chatanu. Then they do the Zichor Brit Avraham, which is a famous Piyut by Rav Shimon Bar Yitzchak. They do Shema, Bakasha, and the Tachina. And then on Erev Yom Kippur, they let everybody off easy, and all they do is a Sheniyah and a Pizmon. Um, that's the, as... That's the, as much as the minhag lita is concerned, other minhagim are very similar. They just switch the order of the um, of the akedah with the pizmon, and they exclude the chatanu and the shema. So that's so much for the structure of the Ashkenazim. It does retain a deliberate structure, and um, even independent, really, of the precise lichot that, that you might see in different in different uh, So finally, let's just discuss the two famous, uh, the two most famous portions of the Slichot for which the Ashkenaz and the Sfaradi are remembered. So if we're, we're basically limited by time here, we can't discuss every litany, we can't discuss every piyut, and I don't think we're going to have another shiur for the next four weeks. So let's just, uh, you know, let's just be honest. There's the two most famous piyutim by the Sfaradim is Adon HaSlichot, and by the Ashkenazim would be Machnisei Rachamim. So the Adon HaSlichot is one of many poems, one of many piyutim in our repertoire of Silichot. And the origins of this piyut are simply unknown. We have the Chatanu Lefanecha Rachem Aleinu, that we have all the way back to Gaonic times, but the Adon HaSilichot Bochin Levavot, it's very old, we just don't know precisely where it comes from. It is included in some Gaonic manuscripts, like the Sidur of Amram Gaon, but Sidur of Amram Gon was corrupted already in early Spain, so it's not clear that it's really that old. The most, com- the most likely reason why Adonis Selichot became a fixture of the Selichot is because of the melody. It is one of the few which goes along with Makam Nahawand, which is just a Turkish Makam, really. And, and, and the, the song of it, for some reason, seems to have stuck a place in people's mind. And for some reason, Adonis Selichot became that fixture, that identity for the Sfaradi uh, also, it has the word Slichot in the first words, so it just makes that easy to remember. But I have not found anybody suggest or even try to suggest another reason for why Adonis Slichot became such a fixture when there are equally beautiful piyutim within the Sfaradi Slichot of today and of yesterday. There are equally beautiful piyutim. So why this one became a fixture is 
probably only attributable to the music. Now, as far as the Ashkenazim, this is where it gets a little interesting. The Ashkenazim will end their silichot with a tefillah called Machnisei Rachamim. And you, uh, I didn't bring one with me. I didn't say to say it by heart. But the, the, the gist of it is that you're speaking to the Malachim and asking them, uh, let's see if I could pull it up quickly enough. You know what? Let's do this. The, the beginning of it goes like this. Let's see if I can, if I have at least part of it. I think I have part of it here. Machnis um, at least the older versions, Machnis Yerachamim it's asking the, the Malachim to bring our prayers before Hashem. Now, if you look in all the commentaries to the Slichot, what they're going to write, right, what they're going to write on the page, if you, if you look at an English language, Hebrew language commentary on the Ashkenaz Slichot, they're all going to say the same thing. Oh, there was a great controversy once upon a time about saying Machnisei Rahamim. This controversy began all the way back in the Rishonim about whether or not it's okay to, to pray to the angels. And some Rishonim hold this way, and some Rishonim hold the other way. And however, the Minigav is saying it was Biadenu, and, and most Ashkenazim still say Machnis Rachamim, despite any halachic concerns. The truth is, no specific controversy about Machnis Rachamim ever existed. The uh, the Rishonim mention it. They do mention this early silicha, uh, but none of them really mention it in negative terms. Now, if you look at the halachic backing for what the poskim are talking about, it comes from a Tamud Yushami. So the discussion begun, begins in the time of the Achronim, because they bring the Gemara in Yushami, Mesecha Prachot Peratet, Rabbi Yudan Amar Mishmei so it says as this, I'm just going to do the translation. Said an average man faced with a problem has to approach a possible savior in the following manner. He cannot suddenly walk in on his savior. Instead, he stands outside his savior's door and calls for his savior's servant or family member. That person then conveys the, mention, the, the message to, that someone is waiting outside. The servant or family member then asks, shall I allow the guest to enter or shall I not? But Hashem does not require that we approach him in that manner. If a difficulty strikes a person, he should not cry out not to an angel, such as Michael or Gabriel. Instead, he calls out directly to Hashem. Hashem will then respond to his cries immediately. This is what the Pasuk means. All those who cry in the name of Hashem will be rescued. This Gemara is one of the Mikarot that one should not pray to angels. A person is not supposed to pray to intermediaries. Furthermore, there's a famous Rambam in Pirush HaMishnayot where the Rambam says in strongest terms possible that we do not pray to any of the um, heavenly bodies. They have no independent agency. They're incapable of independent agency. And therefore, if a person, um, the, the, the fifth Azharav, Shalabod Azharah, is a a is a sorry a warning against people praying to 
um, intermediaries or praying to anything which they believe has independent agency with which the Ramban also agrees. Now, neither the Rambam or the Ramban ever speak about, um, what's it called? Never, let me see here. Let's see the Ramban here. People do quote the Ramban as saying this. I think they bring this from. I think they bring this from the Torah Tamima, which is not clearly. At least this section is not clearly from the Ramban. But there is a portion there where he mentions the idea of saying Machnisei Rachamim. Um, hold up. That is the message we're also have, therefore we Right. It's, it's a little bit, bit, bit mishubash. But he's basically saying, like the Shibbal Halakat says, in defense of Machnisei Rachamim, this has nothing to do with uh, praying to intermediaries. The Shibbal Halakat in Rish Pei Beit says that what's happening here is exactly as the Tefillah says. You're not praying to the angels. What you're saying to the angels is, please bring my prayers before Hashem. You're praying to God. You're ordering the angels to take your prayers in front of Hashem. This is really the obvious solution. However, aside from this, there are other defenses also in the Rokach. Some say that the Rokach brings a defense. There was a manuscript found in the University of Strasbourg. People say that that Rokach is a defense. I haven't seen the manuscript in full, so I'm not going to say that that defense. However, the reason most people today believe that there was once a big controversy about this is because of Rav Chaim Velazhen. Rav Chaim Velazhen seemed to have personally been very uncomfortable with saying Machnisei Rachamim. And he was a big Rosh Hashiva in Europe. And because he, he didn't like this, he also really did not like saying Shalom Aleichem Malachi Shalom on Friday night. He would say, he would skip out the Baruchuni L'Shalom part. Don't ask an angel to bless you because an angel has no capability of blessing you. And therefore, personally, Rav Chaim Velazhen would never say those things. And therefore, there are people till today who follow his practice and will not say Machnisei Rachmim, and they won't say Shalom Aleichem on Friday night because of this fear of praying to praying to Malachim. However, throughout the centuries, it never seems to have been that understanding. Um, for the most part, most people seem to understand Machnisei Rachmim properly, in my opinion. Just which is. Uh, simply that you're ordering the angels to bring, in a poetic way, you're ordering them to bring your prayers in front of Hashem, but you're not praying to the angels in every, in any way, shape, or form. Um, in my irrelevant opinion, honestly, the Shalom Aleichem is much more direct. If you if you if you listen to the Shalom Aleichem piyut that people say Friday night, that seems to be much more di- a direct prayer to angels. And for some reason, despite its uh, seeming borderline heresy, it still became a much a, a much more popular piyut, probably because of the Tikkun Shabbat, as we have discussed in the past. So that much closes the Silichot as we recite them today. If I didn't say it clearly enough in the beginning of the shiur, what I wanted to do today was to re- to recap how the Silichot are recited today in Minhag Sfarad and Minhag Ashkenaz. Um, there are very few other. Nuschaot uh, that are said today. Honestly, the the Temanim have a different nusach. They call it Ashmoret, the way it was called in the in the time of the Geonim. There's tiny communities of Italians in in Rome who will still do a different set of slichot, and the Chazan reads most of it, just like it was done in the old days, in the olden days. But for the most part, most Jews today, whether they're Moroccan or Syrian, or uh, even a lot of Temanim, Persian or Ashkenaz are going to be praying from one of two prayer books, which is either the Svaradi Slichot or the Ashkenaz Slichot, whether it's Lita or Poland. 
Now, and that is that's so much for the for the history of the the, the slichot as they are said today. Bezrat Hashem, after uh, Yom Tov, after the Yamim Noraim, we'll re, we'll continue with our piyut study. I hope with studying the Spanish period and the uh, amazing history of the Spanish period of poetry. And I hope wish everybody a ketiva v'chatima tova, chag sameach, and thanks everybody for your loyalty and uh, and staying with us. So, Chag Sameach, and I'll see you all.